0: Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today's guest is systemic thinker Peter Milan. PETA is International Advisory Board member at the World Sustainable Development Forum and CEO of international media production company Transcendent Media Capital. TMC designs investment programs which address global social and environmental issues. Through such vehicles, Peta engages European business leaders in genuine sustainability transformation from a whole systems approach and is working with world leaders and politicians to enlist a broader range of participation in environmental transformation in alignment with the needs identified by climate scientists. She's also a blockchain expert and holds an MBA and a BA in philosophy and literature from the University of Western Australia.
1: Peta, it's a great pleasure to have you on the program and thank you for being here and welcome.
2: My pleasure, and thank you for inviting me.
1: So, the first question, do you
2: ever sleep? How do you do this all? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know, my husband finds it kind of exhausting to be married to me. (laughs) But uh, I have a lot of energy, because I think when you connect a sense of, you know, purpose, about why you feel you're here on the planet to what it is that you're doing for work, it doesn't really become a feeling of work. It becomes a feeling of self-expression, which can be really energizing. So I renew that way. So
1: have you always been like that? What yeah. What happened in your life? I mean, there is, uh, it's either pain or pleasure. Was it pain or pleasure in your life that brought you there, or was it both? Or.
2: Well, you know, I think um, I was born into an interesting kind of environment um, you know um it, it, it's 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 public you know that I've been interviewed about my story about um, being a survivor of child abuse so abuse was actually a part of my family narrative for generations and uh, uh, and it was the, the perpetrators in our family were always the women and um, each generation got less abusive than the the previous generation um but it was there and and so i was born into this um i guess personality uh you know and the debate is out about whether you're born particular ways or whether it's you know a, a combination of of your environment uh but i was born into this personality where i was always challenging things that didn't feel right to me which uh you know when you're young and your parents are grappling with alcoholism, and it's uh you know there's a scary person in the world. um it's easy to shut down, but I wasn't one of those kids. I was always the one that was calling out uh the falsities that I would see, you know, so I remember uh once uh, my mother had quit smoking and then I saw her smoking a cigar at the front of the house. And I said, "Oh, mum, you've started smoking again, and she was like, "No, no, no, I'm not smoking." It's a cigar. (laughs) And so just kind of instead of accepting these things, I would always call it out and then that would always land me in really big trouble. (laughs) So, you know, for a while there between, I guess, my late teens, I became a bit shut down trying to be a bit invisible in the world. I didn't really successfully do that. But I suffered a lot in those later years and then kind of came through it to be, you know, in a place where I was really exploring what made sense to me in a world, in a world where I didn't really feel ever like I had fit properly? and And that, I think those early experiences were super important uh, for me to really come to terms with accepting the fact that I view things differently. Or I don't want to just go with the status quo or I challenge things. And that, you know, that really led me to uh study uh in my undergraduate degree, I studied philosophy uh and literature. And really I found my home there in you know, in really deeply thinking about things and, and challenging assumptions and understanding that any issue, irrespective of what the issue might be can be argued extremely powerfully from any side and any side can feel equally as truthful and equally as compelling as the other depending on how we actually uh, structure uh, those arguments so i understood i began to understand more deeply how human beings justify certain things to themselves or why perhaps in my mother's mind in that example it wasn't really smoking for her because it wasn't the same as it was before um, and, you know, and built, uh, established a lot more compassion uh, for those types of things. Um, and then that took me into my work because really, you know, I, I hit that crossroad where I had uh, I had done pretty well in, um, in my undergraduate degree and I was thinking about what am I going to do with a philosophy degree? And people would ask me the same thing. What are you going to do with a philosophy degree? <laughs> And I was very proud and, and very clear for myself. I was well, I'm going into business. And people would say, well, what does philosophy have to do with business? And for me, it was perfectly clear. I was like, what does it not have to do with business? So my first practicum that I had, I was working for the large water corporation in, in Western Australia. And I was brought into. to... And it was interesting because these kinds of things had just appeared for me organically through my life without me conscientiously seeking them out. But I was there to actually review the Water Corporation's um, residential water-saving um, uh, program because, as you know, Australia is in and has been for decades under tight water restrictions. And so they had this, this program to try and have households conserve water. Anyway, I read this questionnaire that was being sent out to uh, all the households in WA and I went to my supervisor and I said, look, you know, can I be really honest with you, <laughs> which was kind of the types of things that I would learned to do. But I learned as I got older to ask permission for these <laughs> types of things rather than just throwing it in people's faces like I did with my mum. So and he was like, well, yes. And I said, well, and I'm, I don't, hope you don't mind, but I'm going to swear because in Australia we swear a lot. And uh no offence to people who are listening. But uh, you know, I said, Look, if I had received this in the mail and I read it, I would have thought to myself, Fuck you and thrown it up and put it in the bin. It's so full of loaded judgmental language. And he was like, Well you rewrite it then. I was like, Okay, I will <laughs> So at the ripe old age of, of you know, twenty one or however old I was, I went and rewrote this thing and then they um they sent it out. And uh, where they were not ordinarily getting a response rate of like 0.2%, they they got a response rate of about if I, I can't remember the exact figure, it's something between like 10 and 12%, which was like a record for them. And uh, so he pulled me into his office at the end of the at the end of the the practicum, and and he said, "Can I be completely honest with you?" <laughs> and I said, "Sure." you have to be tough skin you know when people ask you that question <laughs> and he said well i think you're really brilliant but i think it must be really exhausting being you <laughs> and i laughed i said well yes it is <laughs> there's not a lot i can do about that so so it really you know that training in really questioning how things are done and and really um bringing my bold self to the table was proved you know from a young age to be super important and to start really delivering results so you know later then I went on to do uh, an MBA and I had started my first startup when I was twenty four uh, building businesses for other people and across a variety of industries and I just felt that you know the basics of 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 business or the basic of what of what makes sense to to human beings was something that uh was quite intuitive for me, and so I pursued that and uh ultimately I kind of uh reconciled with my mother for a short patch and we we did something together in business where we uh we created a, a management consulting firm together and that was uh, that was really successful for a period of time. And uh, after that, after dealing with um, consult, um, you know, then I was starting to liaise with the bigger guys like uh, PwC and Ernst & Young and and those folks on on different things. And uh, after that, uh, dealing with the corporates, I was a bit burnt out. So I decided, well, I'm going to sell everything. I sold my house and my car and packed up my two kids and we moved to Thailand where I had a nice sabbatical for a few years. And had this incredible experience of, of healing and, and raising my children in an incredible environment that was really community-oriented and really nurturing, to think about what I was going to do next. And uh, that was actually in the, the same week that I was offered a a job to set up the uh, Vantas office in Australia, which was, uh, I don't know if you know Vantas, they're a McKinsey's competitor based in South America, specialised in mining. I had some experience in mining and also a CEO role for a medical supplies company. And I said, look, thanks guys, but I'm out. <laughs> and it was interesting, you know, so when um, I was growing up, my mum had some of these old beliefs and she taught me that if you ever get a tattoo, you're never going to be able to get a job. So when I moved to Thailand, the first thing I did was I got my first tattoo. (laughs) I'm never having a job again. (laughs) And I didn't to this day. I didn't. Then I went out and set up my own things. So in that time, which was a really lovely healing time for me to reflect and about, you know, what was important to me, I uh, decided that I wanted to write. uh, But I wasn't sure what I wanted to write and then I decided that I wanted to write film because as you can probably tell from the interview so far, I'm quite an extroverted personality and I wanted to be with people. and I wanted to collaborate. That's, you know, that was always really lighting me up and inspiring me. I didn't see myself, you know, off in a beach shack in the middle of nowhere bashing out a novel alone for 12 months. Uh, So I wanted to collaborate. So I was was fortunate to meet a friend who uh, ran a production services company in Thailand and I got a couple of gigs on some Hollywood productions and then I met uh, my producing partner on a Pierce Brosnan film that I worked on and we decided to set up our own thing, uh, our own production company. So it started off film as film. So I went into that industry like I did when I was a management consultant. You go into a new industry and you have to like, Learn at a rate of knots a particular kind of industry so you can understand, you know, the risks, the opportunities, the threats, the challenges, all these types of things. And I really saw back then by spending quite a bit of time in LA and Canada and working within the film networks that even the most seasoned producers didn't have answers to certain questions. Like, how, how, yeah, exactly, like, how do we deal with financing issues? in this industry? How do we deal with, you know, distribution changes with emerging technologies that change the way in which money can be made on film? You know, back then there weren't those types of clear answers. And so I was that annoying person, you know, in the audience during keynote speeches at at the Toronto International Film Festival asking these questions of producers. And I actually had one producer come up to me afterwards going, I'm sorry, I just gave you such a bullshit answer. But the reason I did that is because I don't really have the answer, but I didn't want to show that I didn't have the answer. <laughs> she actually yeah, like hunted me down after that uh, experience and uh, to, to apologise. So it was really interesting. So what I saw was I couldn't do just film because that was going to be something that was a shifting landscape. So I broadened the scope to media in general. and uh, And then... Beyond that, then you know we were we were plowing forward, and we had optioned a few scripts and done these types of things. And then I had this experience of going to the world premiere of this film called Man Down, it has uh, Shia LaBeouf and Kate Mara. For anyone out there who hasn't seen it yet, and uh, it was a world premiere, so the actors are there, the directors are there, and everyone's dressed in all their finery. It's this incredible movie, looking at. Uh, from this character, from Shia's character, um, who is a, a war vet from Afghanistan who suffers PTSD. And so the movie attempts to show this kind of deluded reality, which is the perspective of the war vet, and the external reality, which is the real world that the rest of his family and loved ones are living in. And in an attempt to, in his world, save his child and his wife, he actually starts putting them into very life-threatening danger and it was such a moving portrayal of this perspective of PTSD that I'd never witnessed before that I was crying, I could hear all the sobs in the audience, you know, people were really, really moved and at the end of the film everyone stood up and gave the actors a standing ovation and, you know, the lights came on and there's all these women dressed in their finery with mascara running down their faces and red noses, (laughs) And, and I don't know if you've ever had that experience, Mariana, where you're just so moved by something that you can't speak. You know, for me, I just couldn't speak. I was in the grip of this emotional experience that I'd had. But what I did notice was that no more than 10 minutes after all of that, people had switched off and disconnected and they were started critiquing the film. Oh, I didn't like that camera angle. Oh, I think the story was a bit weak there, you know, uh, and all these types of things. And I was still in this place of not feeling like I could talk yet because I had emotionally engaged in something I hadn't engaged with before. And that was a really big epiphany moment for me because I realised then that while storytelling was such a powerful way to engage people, to challenge myths and stereotypes and assumptions, there had to be something more because somebody could be terribly moved by a story or what they'd witnessed, but not long after that, they would just snap back into their life as normal and, and, and kick on with the way that it's always been. And I very powerfully felt in that moment that if I wanted to make a change, then it had to be more than just storytelling. And I didn't know what that more looked like. So that led me onto a journey of exploration and, uh, ultimately, um, you know, through a series of different events, and then and then meeting my new partner who has a background in in AI and robotics and understanding his world more, um, I found my way into many leadership groups around the world. So I'm a fellow uh, associate fellow of the World Academy of Arts and Science, and as you mentioned, I'm on the international advisory board for the World Sustainable Development Forum, amongst other things as well. And I started really listening to the experiences of experts across different social and environmental issues because uh, ultimately that was what I had discovered was important to me because you know through philosophy and my studies in undergraduate I was I was often studying things like psychology social justice um, and uh, these different types of things uh, in philosophy and I um, so I got to this place where I started to understand the mechanisms more of of power in the world and what enables systems to be created that sometimes feel immovable. So there were quite a few things that I saw. Firstly, that with globalisation, more and more things had become global in nature, like monetary systems, uh, economic structures, agriculture, trade and development. Um you know, even issues like sex trafficking uh, is a global phenomena. Uh, even though it's more prolific in some areas than others, it still exists globally. So there were certain commonalities amongst the human experience that were a human experience. It wasn't specific to a, a, a geography. And uh, yet we're still trying to govern these things with sovereign law. And that's you know creating some conflict, uh, especially around issues like migration, for instance and then when I was looking at uh, I was invited to participate in the um, a future capital group uh, with through the world Academy, and uh, we were working at u n headquarters on this, really looking at like how do we work with money or what we consider to be a, a, quite a broken monetary system where, you know, our current capitalist system is such that the economic assumptions that drove the original ideas of capitalism are now proving to be false. You know, so GDP, for instance, there uh, is a lot of evidence now to show that that's not really an accurate measure of, of wealth. And uh, we have nations coming out now and, and putting measures of well-being ahead of GDP because we're they're wanting to really get to the source of what drives, uh, you know, productivity and happiness. Uh, and it's it's not, uh, and growth, which is not GDP. Um, and then, you know, other types of assumptions which were proving false uh, in the current uh, economic climate. So including like increasing inequality and, and different things like this. And so we're looking at, well, what needs to happen to create change so that we can better meet the SDGs? Uh, how can we start investing in a way that has mindfulness involved you know in terms of the impacts we're having with our investments how do we know whether a company that says they're operating sustainably is actually doing so so i have this cr- incredible friend uh walter van dam he and i are, are writing a book together at the moment and we're really exploring you know the flow of money around the world and how that works and there was this rise of impact investment that emerged uh, quite some years ago. But the idea of impact investment followed traditional investment strategies uh, from very traditional economic philosophies. So, for instance, an impact investor would invest in a project, a discrete project. So, for instance, maybe it's a new solar power plant in some parts of Africa. And normally with these types of things, you have the consultants like the PWCs and the Ernst & Youngs and whatnot making a lot of money off of their consulting services. So that takes a big portion of, of that investment out to the consultants. And then a bunch of money goes to actually building the thing and then there is a discrete group of people that may or may not end up seeing some benefit from that investment but I think where impact investors have got to now is they're actually recognizing that these discrete investments are not actually affecting the system and it's a lot of these things like agriculture and energy for instance are systemic problems which is Uh, which
1: explains why only one percent of all assets under management are currently invested in impact with impact investing criteria if you look at the numbers
2: right right and so, and so, when we're looking at you know the flow of money, this is this is kind of like the prognosis that Walter and I have come to, and we're writing about this in our book together, where you know it's actually the biggest driver of power is consumers, but consumers don't really know that they don't feel empowered uh, for a multitude of reasons. I'll go into that, but uh, you know they contribute either mandatorily or voluntarily into pension funds. Right. So the largest amount of money comes from consumers in terms of investments. And then that goes into the institutional investors who have the second most amount of power because they're the ones who hold those funds and who drive investment decisions. Now, they have a fiduciary responsibility to provide maximum return to shareholders. However, there's new portfolios open up where the consumer can actually say, hang on a minute, I'm not interested in maximum returns. I want to see returns plus I want to make sure that where my money is going is going into responsible investments. Now, the problem for pension funds is like, okay, well, we are also committed to responsible investing and we want to make investments, but we don't really know what is responsible investing. Because sitting up at the third kind of level of power is, you know, government and NGOs where there's a lot of policy change and a lot of regulation. But a lot of regulation is really reactive. You know, regulation only comes in well after some kind of catastrophic thing has happened. Um, and then then we have on this other side, we have CEOs of large corporations and we have the consultants and we have the banks and we have the insurance companies. Now, the consumers have a lot of mistrust for those folks because there were three main things that happened in the evolution of business. First, there was the uh, introduction of this concept of corporate governance. And then businesses were like, oh, my gosh, what does that actually mean for us? What We have to be responsible. We have to report. What, what does that actually mean? And so in, in an attempt to operationalize corporate governance, uh, a lot of the Consultants would come and say it's okay. We'll build your corporate governance framework and we'll sell it to you, and that will help you operationalize things. And so then you see, you know, organisations checking the boxes on corporate governance and meeting the regulatory reporting requirements, but you still have HSBC being busted for money laundering. You still have Siemens being busted for um, yeah, bribery charges, um, over a billion US dollars. Uh, So there's still a a disconnect from what the intention of corporate governance actually meant, which was an ethical governing and a sense of responsibility uh, to shareholders um, to a, a box ticking exercise. Likewise, the next wave was risk management. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh, after a few disasters financially, risk management came onto the table. What does this actually mean for us? What does it mean? And then, you know, the consultants step in again and they say, it's okay. We will design some risk management frameworks and we'll sell them to you and we'll put it into a standardised process so you can operationalize it. And then, again, it becomes a a box-ticking exercise where we still have, you know, the 2007 collapse due to – you know, crazy risk-taking behaviour in organisations. And, you know, you still have, you know, even at a grassroots level when you're looking at occupational health and safety, you have, you know, people ticking the boxes on machinery uh, that should be safe or unsafe or tagged out. And this is a true story. Um, My brother-in-law, he was a surveyor and he was – in the north of Western Australia, surveying a cement uh, plant, cement manufacturing plant, and he was on a cherry picker. And the cherry picker collapsed underneath him and threw him, you know, miles in the air and, and he died. And this piece of machinery had just passed its safety check. And then when they did the investigation, they realized that all the bolts that held the entire piece of equipment together had been burred and were completely broken. And then under his weight, and he was not a big guy, it had just collapsed. And we see these types of thing a lot, um, the, these types of things a lot. And then the third wave was now ESG risk and corporate social responsibility, and then organizations are the same, like, oh my gosh, how do we operationalize this? What does this actually mean for us? What are our responsibilities under these? And then the consultants step in and they do the frameworks. And we still have, you know, companies who hire agents to deal with local issues, whether it be in Myanmar or Nigeria or you know, parts of Asia or wherever they're operationalizing. And turning a blind eye to all manner of unsustainable practices, whether it comes to waste management or whether it comes to child labor um, and these types of things. And then they're going, oh, but that's not our responsibility because it's the agent's responsibility and they assured us it was okay. And then the agent goes, it's not our responsibility. It was the company, local company's responsibility. They assured us it was all okay. And there's this constant buck passing. So then ESG risk uh and and um and corporate social responsibility becomes disconnected from its original intention, you know, to provide better sustainable practices and also a tick boxing uh box ticking exercise. And we can see the same thing happening now with this move globally towards carbon neutrality.
1: And UN SDGs and others,
2: yeah. Yes, exactly. And we can see all the consultants jumping onto that because that's another revenue stream for them. Let's make, you know, Um, You know, some kind of model where we can measure, you know, the carbon emissions of XYZ or we can trade on carbon credits or we can do different types of things, but it's still disconnected to the fundamental issue of how do we actually operate in a way that's sustainable because that is going to require that we think differently and that we do business differently differently. And we challenge the fundamental frameworks of our business models, and not many organisations are prepared to do that yet. So these types of initiatives become part of the smoke and mirror show, where you know the the Goldman Sachs and the J.P. Morgan Chasers pay the consultants to work with or organise with the um, the CEOs of large corporations to produce these reports and these presentations that make all these large Organisations look shiny and compliant and good and, you know, these uh, consult, uh, JP Morgan Chasers and Goldman Sachs, they want to manage billions of dollars from these pension funds because they make their money on transactions and it becomes a smoke and mirrors show. And, and, and this is a real scenario with, with Walter, who used to be um, on the board of very large multi-billion dollar waste management companies in China where the boards of the pension funds would do their annual trip to China, as an example, so I'm not just isolating a Chinese company, but it's a real example, um, to, say, visit a chocolate factory that they have there. And then the executive assistant of the board members would organise the trip, and then whilst the trip was being planned, the factory manager would bring in a decorating team They would make everything painted and shiny and new. They would bring in a bunch of people who oftentimes didn't even work there, put them into nice fresh uniforms. They'd hire a translator who also didn't work there to do the translation into English. Uh, And then the busload of the board would come and have a look and say to the translator, oh, what is it like to work here? And she would be like, it's very good. It's very good. Uh, And they would get their chocolate bars and they get the nice tour around the factory and it all looks pretty and wonderful. And and happy. And, you know, even that, if that were true, which it's not, you know, it ignores the fact that there's still children picking cocoa beans in Ecuador. Uh, And so, Walter is advising pension funds to actually not show up on the day that's planned, (laughs) to show up either the day before or the day after, (laughs) so that they can actually see, you know, what's really going on. Um, So, for the pension funds, it's completely frustrating, because they can't see really what's considered a sustainable investment so what chance do consumers have um so so this is where you know i stepped in with my company and you know my collaborators and partners to say well, what can we do? What are the key areas here that would actually make a systemic change? Because trying to convince CEOs whilst the system is set up to only reward maximising return to shareholders as the only measure of value, is, it's never going to work. They're just going to do what needs to be done for the perspective of a marketing attempt uh, to make themselves look great and compliant and look good and sustainable because there's more and more pressure now. That if you're not, we're not interested in investing in you um, rather than actually challenging the fundamentals of how they're operating. And and that's a problem. So in the work that I was doing with my colleagues, we developed um, a whole systems change model that is based on four critical areas. So we could take, you know, we're focusing on four high level areas of need. One is youth, one is gender, one is the earth, and one is peace, security, and stability. And within that structure, we have a plethora of issues, whether it be agriculture or climate migration or energy or um, youth at risk or education. How do we tackle these types of things? And the key areas that I found that were missing, uh, and even working with specialists in, in in whole systems change, is this idea of complexity mapping. So often investors are scared of complexity because it assumes more risk. Uh, but if you understand the complexities and the interrelationships between variables and the interdependencies, you're actually minimizing your risk because you're understanding. Where things could actually get in the way of your desired outcomes or put at risk um, the you know the returns or the deliverables that you're expecting to have. Uh, so we don't shy away from from delving into the complexity and sometimes feeling like our brains are going to explode <laughs> while we're figuring it out. But we put a lot of effort into that stage. And then there's the legal regulatory, which normally comes after the fact, after there's already been does a disaster. So colleagues of mine out of the University of Florida are um, incredible human rights lawyers and I are working on building an international legal framework for the mass movement of people, which is grounded in human dignity. If the climate science is accurate, we reasonably expect expect that more than a billion people will be displaced by 2050. So we don't have any structure from a legal perspective nor from a practical perspective of how to... Accommodate and support this movement of people, and this is going to provide some interesting times because mainstream media and politics is politicizing this this sorry this issue, um, and making you know building this kind of populist idea of anti-immigrant sentiment. Yet the economic research will show consistently over time that migration bolsters economy. So how do we set ourselves up to prepare for shifts? in populations, but also shifts in the flow of money as well. Uh, and none of that work's being done. And in addition to that, you have to include media and technology because the media is the thing that helps shift assumptions and stereotypes and can drive people to action. You know, if you look at the stuff that's happening now around the the, the climate strikes that Greta Thunberg has been driving um and other types of issues with the Me Too movement, irrespective of your political view on these things, it is an example of an effective way to mobilise people into action and inspire people and empower people. You now, people are f- tired of feeling powerless, that these issues are too big for them. Uh, and we need to give people tools to feel like that they can actually make a difference to the things that are either threatening their stability or future generations that they care about. Um. As well as the particular issues that they care about, you know, whether it's domestic violence, whether it's climate change, whether it's trafficking, whether it's you know women in STEM and finance. We need to give people, ordinary people, the tools to 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 empower themselves around this. And then there's the technology, and the technology can provide practical tools around how to actually um, drive change in a measurable way there's a lot of really interesting emerging technologies uh such as distributed ledger technology or blockchain um you know the way the directions that machine learning and natural language processing uh, are moving towards now and uh and iot i mean there's still things that we don't have answers to yet there's you know increasing challenges around privacy and security um but that's part of the evolution of technology and uh and and so all of these things coming together, if we can identify pressure points within a certain system and implement a a program of change that we can then start to see see shifts in whole systems. That's what Transcendent Me Capital is working towards. Uh, in partnership with, uh, I I also am a co-founder of a a technology company called JD Lie Technologies, where we are focusing on those emerging tech opportunities uh, with large corporations, but also in terms of product design. What can we design? What can we build that is disruptive, not from a commercial perspective necessarily, but from the perspective of a social or environmental issue that if we were able to develop this thing, it could really make a difference. But fundamentally, we need to move our thinking away from this siloed perspective of individual projects or individual in separate investments. We need to look at how things can work together, proper design thinking, you know, to actually shift uh, issues into a direction where we start resolving some of the fundamental inequalities or risks or threats that we currently face in the world today.
1: Brilliant. Thank you so much for, for this tour de force <laughs> explaining to us what um, the core of your model is. And I, I could not agree more with you. And uh, so I'm looking forward to working with you together with uh, was uh, the world Academy of Art and Science and others on influencing the decision makers to um, provide the proper infrastructure uh, regulations and uh, taxonomy and benchmarks and disclosures and so on that belong to uh, the implementation so and and i'm I'm actually thrilled to uh, to see the advances that are currently being made at the European Commission level uh, along Side the financing sustainable growth and others, and uh, climate, and so on. And I totally agree with you that um, we need to move away from silo thinking and uh, open up to more complex thinking, which, of course, is very difficult for most people, <laughs> me included. But uh, there is no other way around. And um, so, providing using models and advanced thinking like yours. Is going to help move in this direction. Nevertheless, having said that, um, our listeners are family offices, uh, high net worth individuals, investors who seek a means to run, to work with their capital today and have an impact. Right. Uh, while this is because systems take time to transform. Mm-hmm. And uh, we only have. If we believe that what science uh, scientists tell us about, you know, eight years to have an impact. So, what can at the bottom of the investment pyramid? What can investors do right now? What advice would you make, given your framework and the four pillars of your framework? Mm. You know, in um, investing today. Let's say I, yeah, I have. Uh, you know, today I looked at. Um, a company that we're uh, we have incubated. It's from the uh, medicine environment. It's, it's uh, stem cells, and uh, so we're looking for partners who want to join forces. How would you? What measurement criteria, or how would you encourage? What would you say, to people who are interested, who who are interested in avoiding, uh, replacing their knees or you know other joints when looking at or analysing an investment like this?
2: Well, I I think that uh, anything needs to be assessed in terms of its context. Um, If you take something outside of the context with which it's created, then you kind of lose a sense of the direction of what could be possible with that investment. So I think... um, I think your, invest, the, your network of investors, if they're part of your network, are, are likely thinking in terms of not just financial returns, but also impact. Um, and I think that, um, right, and so ultimately, I think we still need to ask investors to move away from siloed thinking, from just thinking of one investment at a time i think that the way in which to analyze their portfolio investments should be looking at it from a systems perspective because when i was talking about the systems perspective it doesn't mean that there's this like long run period where you don't see returns for like 20 years because it's a whole systems change no that portfolio can be made up of individual investments that target certain critical areas within a system that will deliver good solid returns in you know, the short to medium term uh, whilst doing that in collaboration with a series of other investments that are also delivering returns in the short to medium term but together collectively are impacting a system and i think that that's where you know it and it changes how we think of of portfolio thinking as well because normally portfolio thinking is about how do you structure your investments investments to balance out your risk um that's still good savvy investment but an extension of that is possibly how do we structure our investments so that we're actually able to invest in things that can operationalize a systems change so I think that investors need to delve a bit more deeply into the context, not just the material nature of the investment itself. Because the investment itself, it will or it won't deliver returns depending on how successful it is in meeting its objectives. Uh, But I think if you're looking at integral impact, uh, then you need to actually think about it in terms of of the context within which it's created. So if you're looking at stem cells and you're looking at at this particular issue and the need for accelerated um, physical recovery, and I'm just guessing because I don't know the detail of uh, what it is that this particular investment is working on. Yeah, you're just
1: using stem cells to um, help your knee recover quickly, which avoids, ultimately avoid a transplant.
2: Right, okay. Or a joint, so then, any kind of joint. Right, right. So then you would look at that in terms of obviously still the, the analysis, the, the traditional financial analysis that you would need to do in terms of returns but also is this the kind of impact that you're wanting to have? What is the impact that this investment is saying it has but how and on what basis of evidence is it going to produce that kind of impact? You know, and and I and I think that that's something that um, is challenging because there has been this narrative in the investment world that if you're going to invest in something that has impact, you're going to have to forego some level of return. So there's this uh, pervasive misnomer that yeah, that basically if you're going to have impact, you have to forego returns, and I and 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 that is a myth. Uh, So, but at the same time, the the investment has to be able to clearly define how it's actually going to have the impact. And I think that that's something that's missing from a lot of potentially really good companies that are investments, um, that they don't have behind them proper analytics or theory of change model so that you can actually then demonstrate clearly how that impact is, is going to be achieved. Um, and I think that that's been a disappointment for impact investors when they have invested and then they haven't seen the desired impact that they were hoping to have. I think what was missing behind that investment was a proper theory of change model and uh, and and, and, a, and a clear pathway to um, deliver that impact. And, and like I said, I know nothing about the investment that you're talking about right now and, and how much of that that has behind it. Um, But I think as as organizations, we have to be accountable for that, for being transparently accountable for how we are saying we're delivering on impact and and, and measuring that.
1: Yes, and that's exactly what uh, investors on the ground on a day to day basis need to know. I mean, that's why I've chosen this particular example, because the thinking is the same. And uh, so the theory right. of change in, in our cases, you know, the integral theory, evolutionary, evolution based and so on. And also the additionality factors, you know, what would happen if you, um, you know, if you would not invest or if an investment would not have been, been done in this. So the additionality is also some uh, very often forgotten. <clears throat> and uh yeah. So um, we, we you've been very generous with uh, with your time. So we need to come to a close here. Is there anything else that you would like to add to uh, to your uh, TMC model that you haven't had a chance to talk about?
2: Um, well, I would just say that you know TMC's model is really heavily focused on partnerships. And uh, at the moment we have an incredible partnership with Rethinking Markets Um, and we are presenting in Davos uh, at the end of January uh, at the World Economic Forum with um, a day called the Digital Economist where we're looking at how emerging technology can actually shift uh the landscape of economics as we know it and we have some incredible keynote speakers from from uh, mit there um some people from forbes i'm presenting there as well and so i would absolutely like to put out an invitation to your listeners to come and participate in davos with us on that day they can come and participate um in our in our full day um so uh, I can send an email to you on the exact day of the event, which you can share with your your group. Um, but Davos is the 22nd. To I don't know. I wasn't prepared to answer that question of the exact date. Um, but that's okay. But, no, that's okay. But, we can- you know, we can we can push it out to your network of of listeners uh, with the exact date of the event. But you know, come to Davos anyway because. Uh, There's going to be an interesting movement of new people in Davos this year, which is part of uh, this group, which are uh, younger people, more uh, startup minded people, more innovative people who are wanting to shake things up a bit at Davos and really challenge some of the traditional thinking around, you know, money and how that has to work. Um, because we really are working to shift the landscape of economics so that money actually goes. I mean, there's issues li- with liquidity. There is so much money, and nobody knows where to put it. <laughs> so having these conversations, absolutely. Right. So we are offering uh, opportunities uh, for people to engage in dialogue around. What are where are the places to put this money, you know, in order to have an impactful change that's beneficial for societies and for the planet as well as for the investors. So um, it's going to be a really, really interesting Davos this year um, with with a new breed of, of people going there uh, for the digital economist. So I'll send you the details, Mariana, and you can share that with your listeners and with your, um, your, your, your partners and collaborators and we'll see who, who would love to show up at that event.
1: Please do so. Where can people go and get more information about your model if they want to uh, read more about it? Can you give us an insight to? Yeah.
2: So our our website is www.transcendent-media.com, um, and there is uh, some teasers on there, um, and there'll be a lot more information coming soon. As I'm actually having somebody working on updating. Uh, all of the projects that we're working on that's in progress at the moment, so there'll be lots of new uh, opportunities for people to see um, different types of initiatives that are working from this whole systems change perspective and and opportunities for them to get involved if they want to at a partnership level or an investment level or whatever speaks to them we're always open to collaboration great what is your do you have a Twitter feed? I do. <laughs> It's Transcendent MC. Okay. So how do you want to be remembered? How do I want to be remembered? I would like to be remembered as the crazy pink-haired lady (laughs) who really spent her life shaking things up in order for you know, uh, more powerful sense of you know human basic needs being met. Brilliant, got speed on that. For Thank me, you. that's really what things are about. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, if our, if our basic needs aren't met, right, we can't create powerfully. So, so let's start there.
1: I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for your time uh, for the podcast, and uh, we'll see you around.
2: Okay, thank you so much, Mary. It was lovely to speak to you again.
0: For more on Peter Milan, visit transcendent media.com and follow her on Twitter at Transcendent MC. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment turnaround.com.